Welcome to the Modern Mommy Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Whitney Caceres. I'm a full-time pediatrician and a full-time modern mom. I speak and write about equipping mamas to raise resilient, healthy children and to invest in their own social-emotional health along the way. Each week, we'll give you the practical tools you need to win at parenting without losing yourself. Ever lose it with your kid? If so, you're not alone. Parenting is stressful, children are insane, and you're only human, says Carla Nomberg. She's a clinical social worker. She was at such a loss with her own daughters that she found herself Googling how to stop yelling at my kids during a particularly grueling evening. She's here today to share her wisdom and her insight about how to be calmer and happier around our kids. You guys, today I am so excited to welcome our guest. Thank you, Carla, for being here today. I really appreciate it. Whitney, I am so excited to talk to you. Yeah, I think that the information we're going to be sharing with parents is going to be so useful. So let's dig right in. Tell us your story. Who are you? What do you do? And how did you get to where you are today? So yeah, I'm a clinical social worker by training, and I'm also a mother of two daughters who are 11 and nine and a half. And, you know, before I had kids, I was never a yeller, except, you know, occasionally with my husband or whatever, my sister, but that totally doesn't count. But I was not, okay, it counts, but I wasn't a yeller. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't count. And then I had kids and all of a sudden I was totally losing with them and I was losing it when they were little too, like, you know, one and two years old. And I felt awful about it and I didn't want to do it anymore. So, you know, I sort of embarked on this quest to figure out how to stay calm with my children. Um, And at the same time, I was doing coaching with parents and they were coming to me with the same problem. And I was like, okay, yay, I'm not alone. So that's good. But clearly this is a problem a lot of us are struggling with. So how do we address it? And that's really where this book came from. That's so cool. Yeah. I honestly, speaking as a clinician who sees families and gives them advice, that is the worst feeling is when they're asking you for advice and you're like, I struggle with that exact same thing. If you could let me know the answer when you figure it out, that would be really great. (laughs) You tell me, buddy. Yes. So it does inspire you to go looking for the answers and to figure things out. And I totally relate to that. Actually, when it came to postpartum depression and anxiety, that's when I was like, oh my gosh, I'm facing the same thing all these moms are facing. Okay, I need to get help. So awesome. Yeah, just that honesty helps us to figure out what we really need to do. So, okay, so tell me, because as you did all this research, you tried to look into kind of like what are the main reasons why not just you were losing it, but why everybody else seems to be losing it too. Did you find that parenting is harder now for parents today or like than prior generations, or does it just feel that way? Is it our expectations are off? Like, what's the deal? Oh, look, let's be honest. Parents have been losing it with their kids for since the beginning of time. That's just a thing. Like, let's just admit that, you know. And in the past, parents used to hit their kids. And yes, there is still some hitting happening, unfortunately. But generally, the way we lose it with our kids this days, these days is we scream and yell at them. So we look, this is not a new problem of our generation. Our generation isn't somehow worse. What I really think is the difference, and I'm curious your thoughts, Whitney, is I think our generation is really the first generation of parents to be explicitly told, 
your relationship with your child matters and it will have a long-term impact on your kids. And that's not to say that there haven't been parents in the past who understood this and that there haven't been parents in the past who worked on this. But I think for most of human existence, it was like, keep the kid alive long enough so they can go work in the fields or the blacksmith shop or take over your law practice or whatever it is. So then they can start functioning in society. But it was never like, your relationship is this fundamental thing you need to worry about. And this is all of a sudden part of the conversation in a way that it never has been before. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that parents have a lot of information coming at them. Every single day they get something on their feed, on their phone that says about something that they should be doing with their kid. And none of the parents before this had that experience. And I think also in other countries, I mean, people just expected that the way that grandma did it is the way they should do it, as opposed to, you know, in America, we're so focused on like the generations before us must have done it wrong. And so we need to figure out how to do it right. (laughs) And especially I think in this generation of like, clearly we've messed everybody up. We got to do it differently. And that's a good thing in some ways because we learn like you did and like uh, we're learning from your book. But then also I think it creates a lot of anxiety where people are like, oh no, I I better get this right because it does matter, like you said. Absolutely. I think this idea that we have to have this sort of quote unquote perfect relationship with our kids causes a huge amount of anxiety and stress. I also think too much information is a huge problem. And I talk about that in the book, how, and I know this is a bit rich coming from someone who's written parenting books and is literally feeding information to parents, but come on. Like, I think the massive amounts of information we get from social media, from the news, from quote unquote parenting experts, it's making us crazy. And Whitney, I'm going to step in and say, we just need to stop with all the like other countries business and our country. Because what I will say is if there was a country or a culture or a group of people that had figured this parenting chaos out, we would know it because they'd be like super evolved and super healthy and their economy would be awesome and they'd have all together. And nobody does. Like none of us do. We're all just, yeah, no, you're totally right. (laughs) I'm like done with the other countries conversation. Like we're all just a chaotic mess and let's just be as kind to each other across the borders as we can be. And don't tell me that the other country is doing better than us because we're all a crazy mess. Let's just own that. No, hundred percent. And I think the thing that people get it wrong on is like they, Uh, I think just aren't as anxious maybe in the other countries about the fact that they're doing it maybe not in a messy way. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like in America, we're like, we're like, ah, we're so messy with this. As opposed to there, they're like, ah, we're messy. Ah, ah, whatever. I agree with you. Yeah. (laughs) And it matters the most just, okay, what are you going to do with your kid? What are you going to do with the stuff that you have? And then how are you going to move forward to have your relationship be, be healthy? Okay. So In the book, you talk about how a lot of moms feel like they're bad parents or they have bad kids, and that's why they keep on exploding at their kids. But is this the true reason? No. Look, first of all, I don't even buy – I am not a fan. I don't use – I don't believe in the idea of a bad parent or a bad kid. And people hear that and they're like, wait, 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 honey, let me tell you this story I read about on the news. And I'm like, no, mm, stop, okay? Look – I've seen a lot as a clinical social worker. I've done work in other people's homes. I grew up in chaotic homes. I have really seen a lot. I've heard the stories that you have. And what I say is there is nothing useful about calling someone a bad parent. It's like handing someone a map that just says, you're lost. Like, what? What are we supposed to do with that? You get stuck in this label, in this shame, and there's nowhere to go from here. So let's just stop with the bad parent nonsense. And let's just say that when parents are struggling, as we all do to varying degrees, 
it's not because they're bad people or bad parents or have bad kids. It's because they don't have the information, support, and resources they need. And it's just not possible to parent well when you don't have the information, support, and resources you need. And so many of us think that if we're going to be a good parent, it's sort of this inherent quality we need to develop in ourselves. And it's about willpower and being strong and doing the right thing in the right time. And I don't buy it. I think it's about understanding human nature. And when we get stressed and overloaded, we have a neurobiological reaction to freak out. And I go into this in great detail in the book, not too much detail, just the right amount of detail. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> that, you know, this is literally part of the what I call the fight, flight, freeze, or freak out response. This is a very normal human thing to do to lose it when we're stressed and overwhelmed. And when we start to understand this dynamic, instead of judging ourselves for being a bad parent, which you're not, but when we start to understand this very natural human dynamic, then we can start to work with it in useful ways. Yes, absolutely. Amen. I uh, want people to just hear that loud and clear. I hope that you heard that nugget of gold, just that this is not about you are a bad person or your kids are bad people or they are worse than anybody else. This is just about there are a lot of stressors and moms and dads a lot of times just are lacking in that information, support resources, and rest, as you talk about in the book. Oh, yeah. As well. Yes, which we can get into. (laughs) Okay, yes. So the biology, I mean, it's like our bodies still think that we're in the jungle with a huge tiger coming after us every single time that we get stressed. And so our bodies do that same thing we would do if there was a tiger running after us, which is helpful in the jungle, but not as helpful when our kids are in front of us screaming. That's right. right. So this survival mechanism evolved, you know, what, thousands of years ago when the primary threats to us were physical. And so it's a very physical response. But the problem is now that for most of us, most of the time, the threats we experience are emotional, social, psychological, they're not physical, and yet we still have this very physical response. So our our muscles tense up, our pupils dilate, our heart beats faster, our breathing gets shallower, and the part of our brain that can think calmly and clearly and you know regulate our emotions and solve problems in reasonable ways, that part of our brain literally kind of shuts down because in these moments of survival, we don't need to be able to solve a calculus problem or explain a complicated situation. We need to be able to run or fight. And so the part of our brain, the limbic system, that's kind of this reactive, stay alive part of our brain kicks in. And we're filled with this tension and energy and the body wants to run or fight, but most of us don't want to do that with our kids. So instead we lose it. It's like the way of getting sort of this tension out. And the problem is it doesn't really work anymore. It's not what we want to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is like back in the jungle, it would not have worked to turn around to the tiger and be like, excuse me, will you please stop chasing me? <laughs> would you breathe, please? <laughs> Just <laughs> take stop a deep breath. Sister tiger. That's right. It doesn't work. Right. But now we don't have that. These are actual, just like as Ken Ginsburg talks about, who wrote a lot of books about resilience for the American Academy of Pediatrics, like we have paper tigers, right? Not real tigers. So I love that. Yeah. Isn't that cool? Like it just... I feel like um, it reduces it down to what it really is, all the stresses. But there are some real stresses. There are some real triggers. Talk about the issues or activities that you found as you did research that make us more likely to lose it, that made you more likely to lose it. 
Absolutely. So look, I get super clinical in the book and I decided trigger, I define a trigger as anything that makes you more likely to lose it with your kids. So that's my super clinical definition of a trigger. And love it. Look, the way I talk about it is that instead of talking about our nervous system constantly, I talk about our buttons and that we all have certain buttons. And when we are triggered, those buttons get big and bright and red and sensitive and super pushable. And as anyone who's ever been in an elevator with a child knows, when a child sees a button, they want to push it. And our kids are uniquely and specifically tuned into our buttons. So yes, we want to teach our kids to be sort of functional, respectful humans, but that's a process that takes a very long time. And I don't want to sit around and wait for my kids to get to like age 25 before I stop losing it. So I need to take care of my buttons and make them smaller and darker and dimmer and less sensitive. So when my kid toddles along, although they don't toddle anymore, now they kind of race at me, but when they come at me with their fingers out, there's nothing for them to push. So I try to think about what are these triggers that make my buttons big and right and sensitive and pushable? So I think about universal and unique triggers. Look, universal triggers are things that get all of us going, right? So it's things like exhaustion and sleep deprivation, which is you know a huge issue in the United States for parents and non-parents. I think about stress and anxiety. I think about things like physical pain and grief. So those are sort of what I think of as universal triggers. And then some of us have unique ones. And the example in my family is that being touched a lot and also lots of loud sounds are triggering for me. Like, you know, if I had been born 10 years ago, I probably would have been diagnosed with some sort of sensory processing something. But back in the 70s, they didn't have a word for that. But now I know this about myself. My husband, on the other hand, is oblivious. He can be touched and screamed and people crawling all over him, whatever. He doesn't even notice. And so we have kids. So, you know, yay for him and boo for me. There's not a lot I can do about this other than learning how to communicate with my kids. I need you guys to quiet down a little bit. Mommy needs to go take some quiet space before she loses her mind. I've learned that physical movement, especially outside, really helps reduce the tension and stress that builds up in my body when I'm around a lot of noise and a lot of touching. So I've figured out how to work with that. So one of the things I really um, try to walk parents through in the book is, how to identify your triggers. And if they're triggers that you can get rid of, that you can remove from your life, like you should do that. Like we don't want the triggers. And if they're triggers that you're never going to get rid of, then you need to figure out how to sort of take care of yourself in ways that will reduce the impact of those triggers. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one important thing is just about a lot of people, I think sometimes feel that their life is too chaotic in order to take care of the triggers. And the reality is like, if you have this really chaotic life or a really hard thing going on, that is the moment that you need to be taking care of the triggers the most. I'll, I'll tell you a personal example of this, which is that my daughter has anxiety and um, she's six and she takes medication for it. It's so severe. She's had it since she was like, like literally a baby. Like she only slept like 45 minutes at a time. Yeah. Poor thing. And so, you know, we're constantly dealing with like a lot of appointments. We, you know, deal with giving her the medication, all of that. And in order to deal with it, I get up myself in the morning at 530 in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I go to my little spin class for 45 minutes and I like watch the sunrise on my way home <laughs> and I have my cup of coffee and I do it on the weekend as well. And it's like my time that I know that I need. And recently my daughter was having a little bit of a harder jag with taking the medication. And, um, and my mom was like, 
you know, I think you're going to have to just cut out the exercise because, you know, she, she's going to need you to be the one in the morning. No, mom. You're going to have to choose. No. And I was like, no, mom, you don't understand. That's the thing that keeps me from being on medication, which would be fine if I needed it. But the thing is, I can dim my triggers enough, my buttons enough by doing the exercise and getting the rest before I go to the exercise and not being with her in the morning a couple times a week, that that allows me to care for her and care for myself better. That's right. And you know what, if you were with her on those mornings, you might be so sort of tense and wound up or whatever yourself that you would be losing it with her, which is like not going to help anybody. Right. Exactly. Totally. Exactly. My favorite line in your book is, if you're really honestly, absolutely convinced that you can't move your body more or take a break from your phone for an hour every night, then you may have a lifestyle that is incompatible with not losing your shit with your kids. Oh, like, yeah, really like slap you in the face, you know, so important. Can you talk about this? What's been your experience with, with parents and, and with yourself on this? Yeah, look, a lot of us parents are having our kids later in life. And so we have this experience of being like functional adults who worked, who had jobs and could kind of get stuff done. And we're used to being able to handle a lot of stuff. And then we have kids and we think we should still be able to handle everything. And guess what? We're humans, so we can't. And in the book, I talk a lot about sort of basic self-care that I say is the shit we need to do so we don't lose our shit with our kids. Like you have to get enough sleep. And if you're not getting enough sleep, you have to lower your expectations dramatically and have a whole lot of compassion for yourself because no one can function on complete exhaustion. We need to move our bodies. I don't care what you do. I'm not asking you to train for a marathon. You can do, like I do yoga at the end of my bed. My cats are crawling all over me, whatever. Like do what you need to do. But we have to find some time like alone to do something fun. And I'm not saying every day, but on a fairly regular basis. And you got to take a break from phones and screen time. And everyone's going to find the right balance for you. I know a guy who once a week or every other week drives like half an hour away to spend a half an hour or two hours, I don't know, swinging on a trapeze. Seriously, I mm. would rather eat a glass sandwich <laughs> than swing on a trampeze, but it works for him, right? This is his stress reliever so he can parent well. So I work with parents sometimes where they will say to me, I am a single parent. I have to work full time to pay the bills. There's no bandwidth. I have no time to go to a yoga class. I have no time to go for a walk. I, there is no time. I can't go to bed earlier. Or I work with families where there are two parents and they're in the same boat. Both parents are working full time and they have no childcare. And so then I say, okay, then you have to be realistic that you are in this stage of life because it is a stage the kids will get older and they will get more independent and stuff. You are likely to lose it with your kids because you are a human being. This is not a fault of you. There's nothing wrong with you. You are in an unwinnable yeah. situation. And so let's be real honest. What are the things we can take off your plate for now? And there are almost always things, volunteer opportunities or you know, things you're doing in your life that you really don't need to be doing now. You can come back to it later. And then I've worked with families where one parent has said, you know what, it's actually better if I just quit my job or go to half time or I need to take an extra day off work or work from home a day or, you know, I have to join a child care co-op or really work with my family to see if Aunt Jane or grandma or somebody can come in to help or like something or, you know, I have to spend some of this money and get the groceries delivered. Like something's got to give. So Either sometimes families really do make fairly significant lifestyle changes so that they can have this time that is crucial. This is not, you know, this is not you being um, 
extravagant. It's not. It's a, it's a, it is a basic necessity. And sometimes I've worked with parents who say to me, I can't change anything. There's nothing that's going to change. And I say, okay, then you need to prepare yourself that you will keep losing it with your kids. And let's talk about how you can have a whole lot of compassion for yourself and stop beating yourself up about it because you are, you know, you're, you're trying to run a marathon without any rest and you're going to lose it. So that's, that's what I think about that. Yeah. Real talk. Like it is what it is, right? It's either that we're able to take some time for ourselves, or do the things we need to do to make it so that we're less likely to lose it or we will. And I do think also, and you speak to this in the book, I mean, the stuff we do with our kids, the amount of things we do with our kids, the activities we sign them up for, that is a huge part of this too. I mean, I could go on and on about how, you know, people sign their kids up for the wrong reasons and for like academic success and like for resume building and whatnot and how like (laughs) how that's like really not a great reason for signing kids up for things. But even more importantly, it makes it so we're hurrying more and more from thing to thing and that we're more stressed and that we don't have that downtime for ourselves or for our kids too. I mean, I think that's a component here too. Absolutely. And look, any of this can factor in anything that increases our stress has us spending more time schlepping kids around, you know, worrying about this and that. And did I sign up for this? And did I get this form in on time? And like all of that makes us crazy. And I want to be very thoughtful about as a white woman, upper middle class, I, I feel like it is a privilege for me to say, I'm not so worried about all these activities my kids do. They'll be fine. Because statistically speaking in this country, because we live in a system we do, they probably will. But I was talking to a good friend of mine who's a woman of color. And she said, you know, Carla, I don't agree with you about the activities issue because as my, my children are African-American and I worry that if they don't have enough activities, they're not going to be able to get ahead in life. And I was like, huh, that's really interesting. There may be a privilege piece here that I hadn't thought about. So I do want to Whitney acknowledge that here for sure, because I hadn't thought about it either. But I also want to say to parents, like, let's be thoughtful about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And for example, I'll say to my kids, they want to do after school classes. I'll say, fine, but you guys have to compromise and find the ones that are on the same day because I'm not driving back and forth to school twice to pick you up. And I actually know parents who will do that. They will drive to school twice because this kid wants that and this kid wants that. And it's not about this is an activity that's going to set them up for success in life. It's like, uh, she'd rather do like Dungeons and Dragons than arts and crafts. So what I'm saying, what and what I'm leading to with this point is it's okay if your kids aren't happy all the time. And I think this is a major source of stress for many parents is we feel like it is our job to make our kids happy. Mm-hmm. Your kids' happiness is not your problem. I am far more interested in teaching my kids how to deal with being unhappy or sad or jealous or angry or confused or whatever. And once we decide that it's okay for our kids to be unhappy sometimes, a whole lot of stress comes off and we are less likely to lose it with them. Yeah, absolutely. If your goal is short-term happiness, you will fail every single time because it's like this carrot that keeps on moving further and further in front of you, right? As soon as you make them happy, then they need more to be happy, happy, happy. And we just can't do it all the time. There's, we're, I agree with you. We're not doing our kids any favors by keeping them occupied constantly or happy constantly. Absolutely. Hey mama, when I think about the times I have felt the most overwhelmed or discouraged as a mom, they all share one common theme. In all of them, I felt directionless or like I was headed in the wrong direction even. So as I dove into what could make it better for myself or for my family or just for life in general, I started thinking every day about how I was actually going to move toward where I wanted to be in six core areas, my dreams, spending time on what matters, making space for myself 
taking care of my mental and physical health, parenting and partnership, and being really purposeful about understanding who my kids are, what their needs are, and how I can best parent them as individuals. And after a while, I realized I had something I could come back to when I felt rudderless, but also that I felt lost less often. So I started writing down for the Modern Mommy Doc community more about these six core areas. And that's how the Parenting with Intention journal came to be. Because as I shared what I learned about intentional parenting with other mamas in my clinic or online, it resonated with them. We designed the Parenting with Intention journal to be quarterly, so you could start fresh every three months and be able to look back on the year in chunks and see your progress. If you're feeling like you could use some more intention in your motherhood journey, you can check it out at modernmommydoc.com forward slash shop. You can make your own journal with a notebook or even lined paper. You don't have to buy anything to do this. Above all, I hope you'll take at least five minutes a day to stop, slow it down, and really get intentional about what your motherhood journey is all about. Okay, one of the best parts of your book, I thought personally for me, was about this idea of multitasking versus single tasking or single thinking. And when I started doing the things that you suggested in the book, I was like, oh my goodness. Okay, bring on the self-compassion because (laughs) I'm like the queen of multitasking if I'm not really, really intentional about not doing it. So what did you learn there? Yeah, look, so we were all raised in a culture that thinks multitasking is amazing, that it's a skill we should cultivate. I mean, a job description that said ability to multitask required. Yeah. Like we were explicitly told that we should be able to do more than one thing at a time. And what we now know and what researchers are finding out is that the human brain literally can't do that. What we do is something called task switching, where our brain is jumping back and forth between the tasks. And there's often a lag in there where our body has already jumped to the next thing, but our brain hasn't quite caught up or whatever it is. And the reality is that multitasking increases our stress. So stress is the thought, belief, or perception that we can't handle what's going on. And the truth is sometimes in life, there are really stressful things that happen that we legit can't handle and we need to stop and slow down and get support and whatever. But more often than not, I would argue that we are stressed because we are trying to do too many things at once. And the really classic example in my house that I still do all the time because this is an ongoing practice is it's the evening. So already, you know, we're all kind of tired, which means we don't have as many sort of mental resources available to function well as we might in the morning. And I'm trying to make dinner. So that inevitably means I'm standing over the stove stirring noodles because it's always noodles. (laughs) And I've got like one kid who's trying to do math homework. And I, you know, I used to see these memes about how people these days, old farts like me don't understand how to do today's math homework. And I was like, oh, whatever. And I'm like, I literally, there's numbers on a page. It makes no sense to me. Yes. I have no idea no, how they're math. math. Like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and then I've got another kid like in the bathroom yelling at me to come wipe her tushy. And then, and I'm like, so I'm trying to help my one kid with math and I'm yelling at the other one that I don't wipe nine-year-old tushies because it's not a thing I do anymore. And then like my phone is buzzing because even though I have most of my notifications, turned off somehow everybody's calling or texting me during the witching hour and then my brain is like hey whatever happened to that guy you used to date 20 years ago where'd he go and then I'm trying to make sure the noodles and inevitably something falls apart like I spill hot water or I yell at a kid or like something because I can't do it all at once my stress level goes up and my brain goes warning warning something bad is about to happen 
you know, the Lego tiger, you're going to step on that guy or whatever it is, because I always step on Legos. But when we can slow down and just do one thing at a time, not only are we more efficient in that thing, not only are we less likely to drop, break, lose, forget something, you know, or snap at our kids, but our stress levels go way, way down and our buttons get smaller and dimmer. So now what does this look like? My kids are nine and 11, so they're a little bit older and I've been training them for years, but when it's time for me to make dinner and they come at me with a request, I will say, I'm making dinner now. I will help you as soon as I'm done. And so not only does my stress stay lower, but I would say seven times out of 10, my kid goes off and solves the problem themselves. Whereas if I say to them, I need you to try solving that again, then they get all snippy and we get into a power struggle and I'm, you need to be independent. They're like, you bet. But if I just say, I'll help you in five minutes, they don't want to wait. So they work on the problem themselves and I am less likely to explode at them. And so what I've really worked on and what I talk about a lot in the book is especially when I'm with my children, trying to do just one thing at a time and I'm not perfect at it and it's an ongoing practice. And by practice, I literally mean something that I need to keep doing so I can get better at it. But it makes life and parenting a whole lot easier and less stressful. Yeah. And this idea of when you're with your kids trying to be okay with temporary clutter or not constantly going around trying to fold laundry and like do a task of doing the dishes and da 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 when you have time with your kids, when you're not cooking dinner, you don't have an actual task you need to accomplish at that moment. And it's just time you're supposed to be with your kids. I saw myself so much in that description you gave of just I kind of might have a tendency of trying to fill every moment with something that needs to get done as opposed to deciding I'm just going to sit here with my kids and be focused on them or not, or go do the thing I need to do. But I'm not going to try to fill in every single gap with these little tiny tasks that I can check off a list. Yeah. Look, when I used to be home with my kids and I was just home with them yesterday on a snow day, I would have this sort of panic. Okay. I need to spend quality time with my kids and I need to unload the dishwasher and do the laundry and work on this manuscript and answer all these emails and blah, 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 blah. And so, right. I would be folding laundry while we're playing Candyland. That was years ago. And Candyland disappeared very mm-hmm. quickly from our house. Cause that's a horrible game, but <laughs> we still have it. I try, I try to throw it away all the time. <laughs> it's the worst. Ugh, just set it on fire or something. I don't know. But listen, so at the end of the day, our house would be pretty well tidied and I would have gotten a few things done on my list, but I also would have totally lost it with my kids and I'd be a bundle of exhausted stress. And when my husband was home with our daughters, I'd come home and the house would be a mess, but he wasn't that stressed. And of course, then I would just bite his head off because the house was a mess. But eventually I started to realize, look, the secret is either be with your kids or essentially ignore them. And I don't mean like hostile ignoring where you're like glaring at them, but not talking to them. I'm just saying (laughs) if you have a chunk of time to be with your kids when you are responsible for them, so break it up, play a game with them for about 20 minutes. And then if you can set them up with something, a TV show, a puzzle, an activity, something that they are likely to be successful at on their own. And then you go do your thing. And then come back and spend time with them. So just yesterday, my husband and I both had work calls at 8 a.m. We were all stuck at home because of the snow day. So my kids got an hour and a half of screen time straight up. They were just on their screens. I was able to do my work calls without stress. And then we went sledding and we spent two hours sledding. So it was that kind of thing as opposed to me somehow trying to be like, oh, no, I don't want them to have TV time because it'll melt their little brains. So instead, I'm going to be multitasking on this call because they're interrupting me. Like, that's no good for anybody. So. That's how I think about it. Yes. 
I think it's so simple, but so beautiful. Like just make a decision of I'm going to either do this thing or do this thing, but trying to do both at the same time. When I'm on a conference call, I occasionally I'm on our little executive committee at my office for my clinical practice. And there will be some times where I'm expected to be at the meeting, but I'm also taking my kids to school at that time. Um, cause I start a little later so I can do that. And there have been a few times where I have chosen to be on the conference call while I am taking my kids to school. And this is like the worst human experience to be trying to do both things at the same time. And what I will say to parents is, look, the beautiful thing about these damn smartphones and computer and internet means that we can have some flexibility, right? And sometimes there are times when, yes, we can leave work early to go to the soccer game, but our boss or our colleague or whoever expects us to be answering emails. And so then just acknowledge it, accept it for what it is. It's less than ideal. Not every moment is going to be ideal. And so I will say to my daughters, I can come to your game, but you're going to see me on my phone because I have work to do and be really transparent about what you're doing and just own that. This is what's happening now. I am making a choice to multitask. But what I really want parents to start thinking of is that single tasking or doing one thing at a time, which means you're doing your best to have your brain and your body focused on the same thing, is a very powerful strategy for not losing it with your kids. And that multitasking, I would love us to start working towards it being the exception rather than the rule and the thing we choose to do because we have to. And right now, multitasking is really the rule and we choose to single task when we remember. And I'm hoping to start flipping that dynamic. Yeah, I love that. And that contains so much self-compassion in what you said. This is not about getting mad at yourself or like self-flagellation when you're doing it the wrong way. This is more about trying to shift our perspective as to the majority of the time how we spend it versus where we spend the minority of our time. Okay. So we've tried to reduce our triggers. We've tried to dim our buttons, but still, of course, times come up when we get triggered. So how do we actually stop losing it in the moment with our kids? So I always sort of dove in at this point. I was, okay, instead of losing it, I'm just going to jump up and down or take 10 deep breaths or recite a little prayer, whatever it is. And then in the moment, I would totally forget to do that. Of course I would, because let's go back to the neurobiology where the part of my brain, the prefrontal cortex, that's supposed to be there to remind me, hey, Carla, here are your coping strategies. That part of my brain is offline. And the part of my brain that's saying, freak out, freak out, freak out, is running the show. So the first thing we need to do is get in the habit of noticing noticing when we're about to lose it. And we all have tells, right? We have little red flags that go up. For me, my shoulders go up to my ears. They get super tense. You'd think I would have noticed that, but somehow I didn't. And I start getting extremely snippy with my kids. So when I start doing the, yes, no, fine. That's a good warning to me that I'm about 30 seconds away from exploding. So other people have other red flags. Your stomach might get tight. You might start having all these thoughts about, oh, I just wish I was alone wandering the aisles of Target right now, whatever it is, (laughs) right? And so when you notice those red flags, try to notice them really. Oh, there it is. What does that mean? That means I'm about to lose it and I need to do one of my coping strategies. And I've got a whole ton of them in the book. But really the first practice is noticing. And it's much easier to notice how you're doing when you're only doing one thing at a time. 
If you've got 27 things going on, it's going to be real hard for you to notice. And the more we practice noticing in our daily lives when we're not flipping out, the easier it will be to notice in these chaotic moments. And noticing is just about literally what's going on with my body. What do I see around me? What is happening right here in the present moment? For those of you who don't mind the M word, this is a mindfulness practice, right? Mm-hmm. And so then my next step, the first step is notice. The second step is just pause. Just whatever you're doing, put a pin in it, just pause for a minute. And I like the idea of pausing because, you know, I used to say stop, just stop. And for some people that felt like too final, like, no, no, I really have to finish this thing. Okay, you'll finish it, whatever it is. Just pause. And the reason a pause is so powerful is because if we were facing a real actual threat, we would not pause. We, we That wouldn't be safe. So when we pause, we are sort of sending a message to our body, our nervous system, our brain, hey, this isn't an actual threat. I'm not going to die. I'll be okay. So we notice and we pause and then we do literally anything else except lose it, right? And the only thing I would say is don't do something else that's likely to trigger you. Like a lot of parents pick up our phones when we're like, start noticing this. When you're tense or stressed, many people reach for their phones. This is not so awesome because that might trigger you if you get bad news or see something you don't like. And a lot of parents will ask me, should I go in the other room and yell into a pillow or something? And like, yeah, that's better than yelling at your kids, but we're always practicing something. And no matter what we practice, we're going to get better at. And I don't want you to get better at yelling. I did that for years. I practiced yelling. I was damn good at it. I could yell at the drop of a hat. Yeah. So what do I do instead? Often I will open my mouth and I still have this tense energy I need to get out. And so I'll open my mouth to yell and I'll go. And it breaks up the moment. It gets this tension out of me. My kids, like instead of screaming or something, will stop fighting with each other and look at me like, what the hell's going on with mom? And it's kind of (laughs) hilarious. And I'll do that. I'll jump up and down. I will sing a ridiculous song. Like when I was writing this book, I had Shamalama Ding Dong, like from the Blues Brothers stuck in my head. I would sing that. Sometimes I'll be like, hey guys, I'm going to go walk around the outside of the house and take a bunch of deep breaths and then come back in. Sometimes I'll just say, I need to go in the other room and you're welcome to follow me. But if you come with me, I'll probably yell at you because I'm not calm yet. And they've learned to not follow me because they want to follow and keep nagging. So like literally do anything else. And once, and sometimes you have to keep doing the notice, pause, do anything else a bunch of times before you're really calm. And then once you're calm, then you can talk to your kids. Maybe you still do need to set a limit with them. Maybe you need to apologize to them, whatever it is. But the first step is to get yourself calm. Yeah. And such a good example for our kids too, of how we are hoping that they will be as their adults. You know, when we take our own like, well, we call it, you know, calm down in pediatrics, it's supposed to like time out, right? It shows our kids. That's what we're hoping they'll do when they're adults as well. And like educates them as to what could be actually useful for them. I love it. And I, I'm thinking about this thing in our society about, okay, we need to like address it right now. Let's go, let's fix it. Whatever's happening with our kids, let's fix it in terms of what's going on for ourselves. And so I love the idea of pausing first so that we have that moment to kind of, as you say in the book, like get kind and curious about like, huh, okay, what's happening in this moment? What's going on? Uh, You talk about like looking at taillights. Like if you've gotten angry, like in the car where you're like, huh, interesting, lots of different shapes of taillights, right? Isn't that one of the techniques you use? When I'm annoyed in the car, I'll start doing a little like you can call it a taillight meditation. I just start noticing. And the first time I ever did this, we were running late. We were going to miss an appointment, whatever. The girls were being snippy. I was totally biting their head off. 
So I was like taking my deep breaths and I started looking at the taillights. And then I looked at the taillights and then I looked up around me and I realized we were literally right in front of the driveway to the building we needed to go to. And if I had gone any farther, I would have missed it. We would have been stuck in traffic with no place to turn around. But I was so busy being pissed off that we were late that I didn't even notice we were already there. And so anything you can do, like when you can come back and ground yourself in something you notice in the present moment around you, that's a great way to start calming things down. And to get, I love, so, you know, at any point in this process, being curious and compassionate are two very powerful responses because. Most of us, after we lose it with our kids, what do we say? I'm a terrible mother. I'm ruining them. We make a joke about how much money do we have in the therapy fund. But we like, so, and if we beat ourselves up, that's another trigger. So then we're more likely to lose it again. And we don't get any useful information about like what happened and how can I not do that again? So I try to think, have I eaten today? Are my kids hungry? Like, did any of us sleep? What else are we stressed about? Have I peed? Am I standing here needing to pee? It's really hard to stay calm when you need to go to the bathroom and you're not going to the bathroom. So when we start to just get like on a basic level, curious about what is happening in this moment and why am I losing it, we can make a better choice. And sometimes the choice is to go to the bathroom or get food for everyone or just be like, today's a wash. It sucks. We all just need to go to sleep or to be like, oh, I have this huge piece of stress at work with my in-laws, with a doctor's appointment, with bills I have to pay, whatever it is, I can't make that stress go away. So I have to figure out how can I take care of myself? Do I need to go for a walk around the block? Do I need to put the kids in front of a video so I can call a friend and like get some support? Do we need to go to bed early? Like what, you know, but we can't make those better choices if we don't identify the problem in the first place. And that's the curiosity piece. Yeah. And the kindness piece, I mean, there's a whole movement and there are experts who are all about like mindful self-compassion, right? Uh, Dr. Neff, I think she's one of the main people who, who talks about this. I mean, which, I mean, honestly, I've done some therapy that's been self-compassion, mindful self-compassion. And like at first when I went, I'm like, yeah, whatever. Like I've been to yoga classes. It's all good. (laughs) You know, like I know how to like breathe, you know, but it's different. Holy cow. It's a lot of uh, good, hard work, but um, so different from how a lot of us were raised as to like, you know, your feelings, you need to kind of feel okay all the time. Like, how about just work on like performing as opposed to like feeling okay, right? And so it's a completely different task. Self-compassion has been the biggest game changer for me. And look, I spent, what, a decade studying psychology and clinical social work. And I never heard those two words together until I started studying mindfulness. And then when I heard those two words, I was like, barf, I'm out of here. Like all I could picture was, who's the guy from Saturday Night Live? Stuart Smalley, sitting in front of his mirror, being like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like me. And I was like, I'm not doing this. So, but I stuck with it and I learned. And what I learned is that self-compassion is an incredibly powerful, effective tool. And there has been research to back this up. And the example I always give, Whitney, is so if you're like 99% of humanity, within a few days, something happens and you find yourself eating an Oreo or a cookie or whatever is your diet breaker of choice, a chip. And if you say to yourself, I suck. I'm terrible at this. Everybody else is so much better dieting than I am. I'm the worst. I'm a loser. What are you going to do with the rest of that bag of chips? Shove it down your face. That's what I'm right, of course. But when, and research has actually found this, when we can say, you know what? 
dieting is really hard. It's hard for everyone. The reason it's a multi-million dollar industry is because nobody's found the answer yet. And this is a difficult thing. And it's okay that it's hard. It doesn't mean I'm bad at it. It just means I'm a human trying to do a hard thing. What can I do to take care of myself? And what we know is that when you are able to get to that place, you are significantly more likely to put those chips away or throw them away or not eat them. And the same is true in parenting. When we can respond to our own missteps by saying, you know what, parenting is actually a really hard thing. And just because it's hard doesn't mean we're doing it wrong. It's just hard for everyone. And, you know, how would you talk to a good friend? You would never say to a good friend, yeah, you suck. You're a terrible parent. You probably screwed up these kids. Why don't you go down a pan of brownies and a bottle of wine? Like you would never say that. So don't say it to yourself. Well, Carla, thank you so much for being here. You guys, you can get the book everywhere books are sold and you can find Carla at her website. Her name is Carla Nomberg. Thank you so much for being here. I really, really appreciate it. And I know that our listeners are just going to benefit so much from all the wisdom that you gave them today. Thanks so much. Hey, hey, hey. If you loved this episode, make sure to subscribe to the Modern Mommy Doc podcast so you're automatically notified every time we have powerful information, inspiration, and amazing guests to share with you. We would also be so honored if you shared the Modern Mommy Doc podcast with your friends by snapping a screenshot of this episode and posting it with hashtag Modern Mommy Doc so we can spread the word and help more mamas win at parenting without losing themselves. Thanks for being part of our community.